Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to the second week of 52 Weeks of Christmas Podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about the 2003 Christmas classic, Elf. <laughs> Elf was written by David Barenbaum, and it was directed by John Favreau. And it was like a John Favreau before everyone knew like he was Baby Yoda's dad. Like John Favreau before he was is it Happy? Is that the name of him in, in Iron Man? Before before he resurrected yes, and yes. saved Marvel and Star Wars. <laughs> John Favreau when he was a fat guy, then became a skinny guy. John Favreau in two thousand three. <laughs> I like Favreau. I, I prefer Favreau fat actually. I think I like chunky Favreau also. Me too. Much like, I like how I prefer Al Roker. Oh, me too. Me too. And um, I'm going to add Randy Jackson to that list. Oh, yeah. yeah you know what it is? A, a, a squishy version. Listen, as a big guy myself, yeah. uh -huh. when you lose a lot of weight, you tend to get a cranky bit about you because... Mm. You're hungry all the time. You're hangry. Straight You're up hangry. hangry. Mm. You get colder faster. See, there's some benefits to having a little... Having the physique of a bear? Yeah, there, there's some there's some benefits <laughs> that they don't put in the pamphlet when they're pushing weight loss. Sure, you sweat a lot more, but you also stay warmer, like winter, Christmas time. Yeah, this exact time of year is perfection. It's hibernation central. If you put a horn on your head, you could be Mr. Narwhal. Mr. Marwall. <laughs> I hope you find your dad, buddy. Also voiced by John Favreau. I know. Who is still back at Squishy Favreau back then? He lost weight during this movie, Caroline, Oof. over the course of the shooting. Actually, from the time that he films the cameo scene where he's the doctor, yes. he's the doctor, uh, to when they finished filming, he lost 40 pounds. He was doing Atkins diet. Oh. And, and Will Ferrell bought him a ship in a bottle as a wrap present when they finished filming because John began referring to himself after seeing himself on camera as a big sail on a mast because he had like a so much <laughs> that like white jacket and the white jacket white is not right? flattering yo I mean come on it's okay gosh John you're too hard on yourself I would have said please eat seconds I love you, Squishy. <laughs> uh, I, the struggle is real, my brother. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. This was not only Will Ferrell's first starring role, which no one had confidence in him really to be able to lead this movie, but it was John Favreau's too. Who are who are some other people that you really appreciate in this movie? This is a stacked cast, Caroline. I always enjoy seeing a little James Caan. Love some Mary Steenberger. Loving her from back in Parenthood days. She's always a good mom. Zoe Deschanel, I didn't really know her when I first saw this film. So I was like, oh, hey, that's Zoe Deschanel. How crazy is that way back when? But I thought she was super cute and love her little singing voice. I love her little she and him group that she has, her little singing group. So 
I think I think she and him ended up doing a cover for this movie for like the official album release. I think you're right. I read somewhere and I didn't check this stat. I read, and so this may be just internet trivia, but I every read that- single thing we say, we actually don't have any verification on. It's all just trivia. We we read and we think is correct. <laughs> well, some of it we've some of it at least we try and verify from different sources. How? Who? Who are you asking? Well, different internet sources, which, and they all may be pulling from the same place. But actually, for this movie, from this movie, I actually pulled a lot of the stuff I got. Though I actually pulled from Netflix. Just saying, they could be sitting on a throne of lies, Mike, and we wouldn't really know. They do smell like cheese. Um, that's not a, that's not a deal breaker and for cheese. me, though. Meat and cheese. I got to tell you, meat and cheese, not a deal breaker for me. No? No. It's like just a little, uh, if it was out this year, he would have said, you, you smell like a charcuterie tray. <laughs> It's, it's very true. It's very true. What uh, that was, I, I love that because that's like one of the improvised lines. There's there's a couple of places in this movie where uh, Will Ferrell was allowed to kind of go buck wild and uh, and improvise, and they kept the take that he, you know, one of the crazy takes that he did. And uh, yeah, the meat and cheese line was one of those lines. I didn't finish my theory, my story. I, I saw that this is the second most popular. A soundtrack christmas soundtrack behind polar express wow yeah so i mean that's kind of crazy i mean this movie is a staple at christmas time and that's why it's one of the reasons we're covering it second coming off of it's a wonderful life we had to follow it up with something i i feel like i feel like there was pressure to follow it up with a really high quality <laughs> uh beloved film and the right? elf, elf definitely fits that let's barge into buddy's world so this movie actually starts in 1993 which is really interesting. So David Berenbaum is a Jewish kid and he grows up loving Christmas combined with the fact that he loses his father at a very young age. He decided when he wanted to write a movie, when he goes to write his first script, he writes elf as a spec script, meaning no one was paying him to do it. He decides to write a Christmas movie and he decides to make it about a boy's search for his father which that boy eventually becomes Buddy. And that for him, that's what this movie is about. It's a father-son story. It's a it's a son searching for his father that he never knew growing up, which is reflective of, of David Berenbaum's story. And wrapped around that, you get this whole kind of, you know, family classic. So what happens, Mike? Is it made right away? No. So interestingly, he actually sells it pretty quickly. He sells it to a company called the Motion Picture Corporation of America. That sounds classy, Mike. It does sound really classy because <laughs> it's actually very close to the Motion Picture Association of America, mm. which is the organization that does like the ratings and stuff. That's it. That's it. That, that's what sounds right. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, it's like if you have uh, a uh, like a fast food burger joint called McDonald's with like an M A C, like it's Scottish. <laughs> you know, it's, it yeah. sounds Mac, close. McDonald's. Yeah, it's exactly like <laughs> you get a burger with haggis. <laughs> you know, like something like that. So when David's writing the script back in 1993, who's a comedy star? You're thinking of like a big, like out, you know, outlandish man-child comedy star. He's thinking Jim Carrey. Which makes a ton of sense, right? We're, yeah. we're, it's pre Ace Ventura days, but it's definitely in living color. The Ace Ventura is about to come out in the next year. When the Motion Picture Corporation of America buys the rights to the movie, they option the movie. They are pitching Chris Farley to hmm. be the star, to be the buddy. Okay. Well, I could see that. I, I could see a version of this with a Chris Farley uh, in, in this movie. 
but it would be a wildly different kind of movie, I think. You do? I do. I think I Chris do, could have done a pretty a pretty convincing, like, innocent, big-eyed, kind of baby-faced man-child. <laughs> something I always found Chris Farley very, very funny, but his comedy never struck me as innocent. His comedy, even when he was playing something innocent, always struck me more as dim-witted frat guy i never got childlike from chris farley i got not childlike not the way will ferrell eventually brings him to life that being said i think jim carrey is a very different role i think i think a buddy is more malicious in a jim carrey like a a, mischievous yes like a like a naughty child you know curious but like pantsing people curious a Dennis the Menace kind of buddy. Yes, I like where you're going with this. And I think that's framed by now hindsight 25 years, 25 years, mm, 35. Ouch. Yeah, no, like 25, 26 years of like Jim Carrey's career, I think is probably framing that. But think back to like Fire Marshal Bill, uh, Ace Ventura, uh, the mask, you know, all these kind of roles. It's all kind of like, ain't I a little stinker, like a Bugs Bunny Oh, yeah. There's a lot of smirking. Yes. A lot of winking at the camera. A lot of fourth wall. Like, right. I get you. So this was this would be very different cast differently. When David Berenbaum gets wind that Chris Farley's the guy that they're looking at, he actually sits on it and he doesn't move it forward and runs out the clock on MPCA's option for the movie. Very bold. Very bold for a guy who was not known, hadn't done anything. Your first script out of the gate and someone wants to bake it. And and you have the cojones to say, no, Hollywood, I'm I'm rejecting Chris Farley. I don't know who I want to play this because Jim Jim Carrey then is blowing up by that point. And it's probably it's too late. He sits on it. He runs out the clock and the, the option deal runs out. And it's not for another 10 years. New Line Cinema actually picks up the movie. They eventually find Will Ferrell. Now, New Line Cinema balks at this. Everyone balks at this. And they actually get turned down before it actually comes to New Line Cinema. They shop it around to a lot of different movie studios. One of the producers knew Will Ferrell. And they had gotten the script in front of him. And he liked it. He was uh, coming off of SNL. But he had never led anything. He had only ever been in, like, Roxbury. Like, Night at the Roxbury. It was pre-old school. No studio wanted to trust him as a leading man in a Christmas movie. It just wasn't a track record that they could prove. But that was the guy that they could get because the producers who came on could get Will Ferrell and he was interested in doing it. New Line Cinema eventually greenlights it, but they're very, very nervous. And then they get Jon Favreau, who also... No one knew. He was untested. He hadn't directed anything. He had he had done very little in Hollywood and hadn't done anything for a while. It had been a while since Swingers, and that was the biggest thing he had done. You have producers that had never produced a movie before, uh, and a leading man who had never been a leading man in a movie before, and a director who had never directed a major motion picture, like a major studio high-budget movie before. Yeah, it sounds like it could have gone very, very wrong. And so John Favreau gets approached, and this is the really interesting thing. He's actually not interested in the script. He doesn't want to do it. He actually turns them down the first time because the the script is too dark for him. I heard originally it was supposed to be like PG-13. 
it was going to have a it was going to feature like the elves in the North Pole were going to be kind of like more like full on bullies. They were going to like they were going to bully Buddy and and kind of chase him out of the North Pole. There's a a a scene cut from the original script where there's like a hockey scene like that turns kind of violent with like a a a big Buddy like bowling over like elves like a like a much meaner spirited kind of movie. Mm, Don't like. That doesn't say Christmas classic. That doesn't no. say warm family movie. Mm-mm. So John Favreau, they come back to him again and he says, I do like the idea of directing Will Ferrell in his first leading movie after SNL. Uh, that very much attracts me, but I don't like the script as it is. He sits down with it and then he has an epiphany. He, like so many of us, grew up watching the Rankin-Bass Christmas movies, the stop animation Christmas, they're not movies, the Christmas TV specials, uh, Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Were, were these were these movies or TV specials in your house growing up? Absolutely. Herbie, the dentist, come on. For me too. Honestly, when I think of like Christmas movies and Christmas time media, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is the thing. That and Charlie Brown Christmas special those are the two most formative christmas movie experiences i have as a child the abominable snowman come on not snowman what's his name (laughs) snow monster he's the abominable snow monster of the north snow monster see called bumble for short yeah good old bumble remember bumble wait hold on yukon cornelius that just came to my brain look at that i'm not even using my phone or nothing he just popped in yeah you're right and sam the snowman the yes. Burl Ives character who does yes. who does kind of like the introductions. Who then would be animated for Frosty the Snowman. Uh yeah, so it's so John Favreau he has this epiphany. If we can if we can change the script, make it more family friendly, and make it more like Rankin and Bass, I'm in. And we're not only going to be inspired by Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, we're gonna kind of outright steal ideas from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And so the entire aesthetic of the North Pole, the costumes, the elf costumes, the coloring on the elf costumes, to say nothing of the stop motion animation that's used with Mr. Narwhal, you know, the Leon. Arctic, uh, Leon the Snowman instead of <laughs> Sam the Snowman, played by voiced by Leon Redbone. I love that he's Leon Redbone. That's so funny. My parents had his record. <laughs> The Arctic Puffin, Baby Walrus, all, you know, all of, like, the little, like, animated, like, like claymation kind of... toy versions. I mean, I, I think the Arctic Puffin may even actually be in Rudolph the red right here. <laughs> yeah, and, and Leon the Snowman is basically Santa Snowman, but with, like, you know, cool sunglasses. He's, like, he's, he's kind of like the jazz musician version. He is. He is the hip... He's the hip, hip jive uh, uh, Sam the Snowman, for sure. He's got the Leon Redbone vibe. The studio is like, okay, you can do all this kind of stuff, which actually leads to some interesting uh, legal hiccups, because there are parts of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that have fallen into the public domain because of bad copywriting. This is the second week in a row we've had some bad copywriting and uh, trademarking uh, intellectual property issues. There are certain things that they can take and borrow heavily from in in Red, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is not a problem. But there were certain things that were well copyrighted and protected by the Rankin and Bass. And they had to go to Rankin and Bass uh, estate to get permission. And it actually took quite a while. The movie was actually well into development. The, the studio contracted to make the stop motion animation segments was working on 
the stop stop motion animation before they actually had clearance to do anything. There was a point where New Line Cinema's attorneys like stormed the set essentially, and they were like, "Where is your permission to do any of this? How much are you borrowing from this? Like like, like an Inquisition, Caroline, like holding them to the fire." I can't imagine, but also very, very forward of them to think that they could get away with, you know, it's an homage, yes, but... Uh. <laughs> yeah, it, it really puts the maj in homage, Doesn't for sure. It, though? Maybe it puts the O in <laughs> It puts the O! It puts the O darn! <laughs> well, if you listen to the producers talk, and again, this is covered a little bit in the holiday movies that made us, and you guys should definitely go watch that, not that I work for Netflix, or that they're sponsoring this episode. Definitely go watch it, and there's some talk that there may have been a more of a misunderstanding that they thought that they had the permission to do they thought that there was a deal sounds like maybe more there were some winks maybe there was a handshake but maybe nothing in writing to take all of the liberties that they were taking going well beyond just a hint and a nod or an homage to the upright lifting of things but in the end it all worked out and everyone signed off that needed to sign off new line cinema's attorney signed off which you know lawyers uh, nothing gets lawyers. made if lawyers, if lawyers don't allow it. That whole front part of the movie could have been wiped out in a minute. It's so important to understand Buddy's origin story and how adorable. I mean, Papa Elf, come on. When he's trying to explain elves and trolls versus gnomes, I mean, oh my gosh. The setup just like melts my heart. Bob Newhart is maybe the most perfect casting because he has such a, a wholesome grandpa patter about his speech. He's got a really likable stutter that is just endearing. <laughs> I love him too because he's not pandering, but he's still like smooth and soft. Like he's he's very dry. Like he's not trying to be like, hey kids, we're gonna have a movie. But like the way that he's talking, you're like drawn in without it being like overly, you know, aggressively animated at you. He's not trying to put on air. So yeah, I, I think I'm picking up the exact same thing you are. Right. He's he's very matter of fact. I'm Papa uh, Elf. I'm Santa's, like, head mechanic. I adopted a child because I never had one. This is the story. He acknowledges you're here for the buddy story, and I'm going to tell it to you. What's your favorite occupation of the three uh, jobs available to, to elves? I would probably like to work in the toy shop versus I don't uh, baking cookies would be my second. I definitely do not want to cobble shoes like no, that's a hard pass. I frequently when I want to order takeout say I don't sew my own clothes and I don't cobble my own shoes. Why do I have to cook my own food? So I feel <laughs> like I would not want to do that. So I'm I'm in the I'm in the toy shop. Plus, I mean, it seems like they have a lot going on. The stress would probably get to me a little bit, but they you know they got a, like a choir and they have activities and they seem like they're they're just fun. I do like the fact that they have a choir. It's kind of adorable. I feel like through media, through pop culture, we all have an idea of what the North Pole looks like. I feel that Elf really takes us behind really pulls back the the curtain on on the inner workings and the real life conditions the quality of life that the elves have in a way that most <laughs> things don't that's another reason why i don't want to bake cookies because man that looks like they make a lot of mistakes often burning your house down sure the i mean an oven in the dry season yeah. in a tree is i mean papa elf is exactly right that's a dangerous dangerous thing <laughs> it makes you appreciate the keebler elves that much more and mm. what a national treasure they really are for us to have right? they are brave men 
They I are. I think there might the, be a woman in there, but not much. It's, it's heavily male dominated. Like the celebrity chef business, also in the re, in the restaurant tour business, you and I have had this conversation. I feel like a number <laughs> we of have, times we have. <laughs> about why it's so stereotypical that women cook in the home, but restaurant tours are always men. Are often men, yes. Are often men. It seems that the cooking elves, the baking elves, tend to be a male dominated. The, the whole thing, all Industry. of the working elves were mostly men or male True. elves. I don't know what male elves are called. Probably not men. <laughs> Maybe melfs, welfs and melfs. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, I think that's another kind of occupation. That's, that's also a different podcast, I think. Ah, yeah, I mean, there's some cute girl elves, I think. There were some know. cuties. Yeah, no, but but far. I mean, gosh, I mean, 10 to 1. Sure. Well, not great odds if you're a single elf, for sure. No. Uh, what, were you impressed at the leadership and managerial skills of Ming Ming the elf? I Caroline? super was, and I recognized his blue eyes, Mike. I know he's uncredited, but I recognized them. I'm I'm very much like attuned into individual features of people's faces. So as soon as I saw them, I was like, I know him. Uh, see, I did not. Not until the movie was over. I did not. So so people may not know what we're talking about. So who plays Ming Ming, the head leader elf? Peter Billingsley. Ralphie from Christmas Story. I love that they have Peter Billingsley in here. I love that he's uncredited. Mm -hmm. You know, it really feels like, you know, John Favreau just was kind of going for for all of the good family fun and Christmas spirit you could get by having him in this movie. And and not and not just like a one-line role. He's actually in a couple of scenes, kind of like a couple of important scenes. He's got to talk Buddy down. He's he's an important part of Buddy's journey. Knowing that the original script had the elves being a lot more aggro and aggressive and maybe to to the point of bullying Buddy, you you have a very kind heart and and you don't like people being mean to other people. How do you think the elves handle Buddy? And his insecurities about his, you know, abilities as an elf. I think one of my favorite, favorite parts was when he was like, the one little elf was like, well, you had to change the, the batteries in the smoke detector. And they're, and they're like double A's. And then when the other guy goes, and in six months, you're going to have to do it again. It was so cute. And like, such like a little PSA, like, yeah, have you checked your smoke detector lately? <laughs> like, it's very true. It was so cute. And I, you know, I feel like I've been in those situations where you're like trying to think in your head about like someone's very good traits and you know there's like certain ones you can't say so you're like really 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 like digging for like if changing the battery in the smoke detector is what you're at that's just hilarious you know now i i'm pretty tall and i was always one of the more taller taller people in my life and i've been complimented for being useful for being able to reach things on high shelves so <laughs> i've actually gotten this compliment before and it's a little double-edged sword it's it's nice to be complimented who doesn't like a compliment but it's you know you look at the the breadth of your life and <laughs> and the things that you feel like you could do and you know this is really what i'm gonna that's get your at. special talent <laughs> now now so this is weird. a really this is a really interesting thing, though, about this movie, though, and, and maybe not one of the intended messages, but I think it's certainly a message that comes through. We can't lose sight of the fact that in one day, Buddy the Human made 85 Etch-a-Sketches. I could not make 85 Etch-a-Sketches in a day, so nor could I come close 
to the Christmas decoration extravaganza he puts on in Gimbals later on. Or even his Etch-a-Sketch skills when he, like, is making the list with Walter and he has, like, clearly, like, made it all with the Etch-a-Sketch. I mean, he does have some, like, morphing into elf skills. He does He does a pitch-perfect Mona Lisa recreation on an Etch-a-Sketch. He writes a farewell note on his Etch-a-Sketch. I mean, he has he has amazing skill sets. It's just that you have to change your perspective, right? It's, it's like so many other things. It's like so many things in life. Sure, maybe you're not a, a standout if you're looking at it from this angle, but take a little step around, walk around to the other side and look at it. And now all of a sudden, it's a completely different kind of view and you are a standout. What if whatever you're supposed to be stellar at just hasn't been invented yet? It's a whole thing I worry about actively. Like, what if it was like hundreds of years ago and basketball hadn't been invented yet? And nobody knew that you possessed everything inside of you to be the best basketball star, right? But it just wasn't here yet. What if I'm like the best at something, but it's just not here yet? I dream about this. I worry about it. I think you just kind of blew my mind. So the person who is a great computer programmer probably has some parallel skill. Oh, come on. If Say that dude was was born in pioneer days. What is his stellar skill set that is going to be the same as the money and status he could have gotten for being some massive computer Maybe programmer? Maybe not money and status, but he would probably be an excellent organizer of the, of the, um, the equipment and and materials that the pioneers would need, right? Because he deals with ones and zeros and he knows how to group them to make sense and make, literally write a language, use grouping ones and zeros together. No, That's probably is, a person This is not can, helpful though in your pioneer days. Well, you know, but grouping but grouping together like all of the grain that you're going to need and oh, all Oh, come the on. Lumber. The children like, could organizer. do that, Mike. I then we're going to end up saying he's credit reaching the high hay off of the <laughs> shelf. <laughs> I mean, Caroline, not everyone is able to defeat, not everyone is able to defeat uh, typhoid in Oregon Trail. Not everyone is able to make it down the Oregon Trail. Everybody ends up with dysentery. What are you talking about? We all ah, died of dysentery. But some people You didn't make... die of dysentery? No, I absolutely died of dysentery. I spent probably four <laughs> years of my life playing Oregon Trail. All of but, us did. We had to. It was the only thing on the Apple IIe. I, why, why let me kill 900 pounds of a cattle if I can only carry 50 pounds? I, what is happening? <laughs> Oregon Trail? I have a boat to pick with you, Broderbund. Maker <laughs> of Oregon Broderbund. Trail. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the point being, Buddy has skills. It's just that it takes him going into the human world to realize that he's got a skill set that humans can't do or appreciate. They'll say it perfectly, right? Anyone in the human world is able to change the batteries on a smoke detector. That's a real challenge for the elves who can make cutting edge technology in, you know, by the thousands full. So it, it's all it's all about your being in the right place at the right time with the right skill set. It's what your culture values and they just don't value the same things. And that's the thing when he comes in the human world, 
We're over here being all like, we don't value the things you do. We don't, we don't have that sense of wonder in the same way, which I wish we did. And I try to every day. Now, here's the thing I don't like. I don't like that we find the elves talking smack and throwing shade about Buddy in the workroom over that there, Coco. was rough. I mean, and it's necessary because it's what sets him off on his existential crisis that leads him to eventually leaving and, and leads to Papa Elf telling him, you know, what's been going on and why he's different. Now, to be fair, it wasn't total mean elf talk because it was really just trying to ask like, hey, I'm trying to cover the shifts. I'm kind of, I'm kind of behind. I'm frustrated. I'm overwhelmed. It wasn't like Buddy's a bad guy. It wasn't. Anything. And it wasn't malicious, but it, it was exasperation, right? Because, because the numbers are off and they've got to get ready for... Christmas. I get that. The stress would get to me, Mike. Yeah, they're a little too buddy is special. And I'm very sensitive to pinging people for having disabilities or otherwise being considered lesser than. And I feel like they were walking a fine line here, exasperated or frustrated or no. I feel like they were walking a real fine line here of being a little too much. They were calling him slow. They were calling him elf slow. Elf slow. <laughs> Which Not is rude. It's, it's rude. rude. It's rude. It's rude. I, in a way that never really bothered me before. And people <laughs> and people are, you know, listening to this and probably we're probably getting comments about. Like, when are you going to get to the movie, you weirdos? <laughs> well, because, I, 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 you know, you know, revisionism, because things in 2003, it was a different time than, than is in, two, in 2020 2021. I, I I get all that. I get all that. But after after trying to buck him up just to then go to the break room and be like, that's effing guy, you know, that freaking guy, he's a, he's what a dead weight. I don't know. I felt it a little disingenuous. It made me like Ming Ming a little bit less. Oh, there was a little stain on Ming Ming's elf tights for you. A little less less on the Ming Ming. That's that was my feeling. That was oh my, my feeling. gosh! So we talked about Ming Ming and Peter Bingsley. We talked about Bob Newhart as Papa Elf. The the one guy we haven't talked about is the big guy. We haven't talked about Santa. And Asner is Santa. My God, what do we think about that? Oh, he's perfect. Come on now with those chubby cheeks and the that little beard and everything. He's perfection. It's not the first time he's played Santa. Also, like Bob Newhart, though, takes a real stoic dry wit take on the role you know he he's a real practical guy uh at asder santa and i appreciated that <laughs> i think santa's got to be a bit of a taskmaster he this is a business he's running here you know he's got to get this stuff done and he's got a lot of pressure on him so I, you know what i'm glad that they again don't play him all slapsticky and silly like Santa is nurturing and caring, but he is busy. They also soften him by letting us know that he's a sucker for babies. You know, he didn't have to keep Buddy when he crawls out of that sack wearing his little Buddy diapers. He, <laughs> he could have sent him back to the orphanage, but he didn't. He kept him. And I like that, Santa. I like that he loves Buddy. Buddy, feeling feeling down about his elfness says, I'm not an elf. And Santa tells him, you're the most elf I've ever met. <laughs> and I love that. I love that about Santa because that's the opposite. Ming Ming needs to get on Santa's level because Santa's <laughs> he's, not going, he's not going in the break room with Mrs. Claus and being like, oh, that buddy. <laughs> right. Right. Totally. <laughs> 
I think before we leave the North Pole, I think we have to talk about just the magic of movie making for a quick second. Do you know how much I love forced perspective? I mean, I love it hardcore. Mike, you probably don't know that about me, but I am not a gigantic fan of CGI. I really am not. And so I really like practical special effects. I like it when they do things in a way that tricks my eye, but they're not always just throwing computer graphics on everything. So I love what they did here. I love it. I love that John Favreau really fought for it. New Line really pushed against it because it costs so much more money. It's cheaper just to hire someone to work on a computer and do your effects that way versus build all the sets that you need to do in order to make it look the same as it would on the computer, but doing it practically. And the reason why? Because it doesn't look the same. There are two things in this movie that are CGI. The snow, which if you listen to the commentary on the Elf DVD, John Favreau, he spends a lot of time in the commentary talking about forced perspective. And he he even goes through and, and points out where the scenes are. And he points out the two things that they actually ended up CGIing was the snow in the North Pole, which he does not like how it looks. He doesn't think it stood the test of time. And it's actually the snowball fight later on with Michael and buddy in the park with but otherwise you know it's all practical effects and you see it though and it makes a big difference because it looks real it looks like something you can go walk on and really be a part of i love forced perspective because it really just makes me feel like i'm in a fantasy situation one of the most fantastical places on earth is any disney property and i feel like they use forced perspective all the time to just immerse you and make you feel like like a little kid or make you feel like you know you're a part of the scene in some way what like optical illusions in general are are fascinating but to be actually physically feel like you're a part of something because of the way that the scenery is around you oh mike it's magical computer generated 3d looks fake to me 3d generated by a forced perspective set looks real to me essentially it's creating an optical illusion that things are of different sizes pushed up against each other, even though it's just the way the thing is built. So in Disney World, force perspective is used often to make the buildings look much, much taller than they actually are. You know what ride is my favorite force perspective ride? I don't. Peter Pan, because of the way that you're above what's supposed to be the city, of what, above London, and the way that they build the little teeny tiny buildings underneath you know it looks like you're you're so far up in the air when you're on the on the on the ship going but you know you know it's not you know it's just probably a couple feet down there but it feels like you're flying it's just it's my most favorite ride of all if you walk down main street usa or if you walk around in uh the early parts of like Hollywood studios in Disney world and look at the buildings that line the sidewalks, look at the very tippy tops of those buildings. This actually, it was actually really, it was used a lot. It's, I think they've since taken it down now in Disney, but back where like Muppet 3d is, um, in Hollywood studios, there was all of these, like, um, back where like honey, the, I shrunk the kids playset was back there. They had all of these skyline shots. And the idea is that the higher you look on the building, it makes the building look tall because they made the uh, scale smaller. So if let's say a, let's say a floor, a ledge would have been like 12 feet when it's on the ground where you're up close against it. 
it gets shorter and shorter the higher you go. So your eye thinks that it's extending much further into the sky than it actually is. It's an optical illusion. It's it's a way of painting or building something to fool your eye into making something look bigger or smaller than it actually is. The way they used it in Elf was to make Buddy and Santa appear much, much larger than the elves. And the way they did that was they built two different sets and they kind of mushed them together in like the schoolroom setting on the right side buddy is sitting there and he looks like a giant sitting at the little school (laughs) desk and then uh, to the left of him are all of the elves who look tiny in their big classroom that was actually two different size sets uh the will ferrell set is is a normal size set made a little bit smaller so he appears bigger and the elf set is a enlarged built set so that the human-sized actors can appear smaller you meld the paint in the middle so you can't see the seams and your eye sees elves and a big person. It's it's really, it's an amazing thing and really expensive to do. And New Line Cinema pushed back really hard on it. John Favreau actually had a fight a long time to keep it in the movie. All said and done, they actually had 47 different forced perspective setups that they had to build. That's amazing. I would not have guessed it was that many. Every time Buddy is with an elf, there's a forced perspective set up there. And it wasn't that they filmed them at different times. It wasn't like they filmed Will Ferrell and then they went over here and then they filmed the elves. Like they were on set together. That's why they had so many different setups. There's that one scene where Santa comes in and he's on the left side of the screen. He looks like a giant compared to the elves. This is when he's talking about uh, get ready for it. Now it's time to get ready for next year's Christmas. You know, he's on an elevated platform and like they're down like in a well and you can't tell. And that that's the magic of the movie making is you can't tell that your eye is being tricked, but your eye is being completely tricked. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love I love that kind of that's the magic of movies that you just don't get anywhere else. I know. And, and and I like CGI, don't get me wrong, but it's just like, it's so overused and it's so just like, like blanket used that when you see someone put in the time and effort to actually do it, I feel that way even about like horror movies and stuff when they actually mm-hmm. take the time to not just do it in, in post-production, you know, not add blood or whatever, but actually have a little squib and like do the whole thing. I love that. I love the special effects when they're real. Oh my God. When a squib explodes on someone's chest, it looks so much different than when it's just like a, a CGI, like a bullet wound covering. When we were covering Nosferatu for pod clubhouse, I learned a lot about all of the practical effects that they used on that show. And that, and their special effects master on that show is a practical effects guy. And he's able to do things practically that I don't know that you could ever make look real or as authentic with a computer. It's a lost art in many ways. Well, especially back in 2003, think about all of the all of the bashing that Star Wars, the prequels get in Star Wars because of all of their green screen use and and CGI use. That's a big complaint that those people people have about those movies. And this movie is being made at the same time as like Revenge of the Sith is being made. Like it's right in that realm. This movie actually comes out before Polar Express. Now, Polar Express, I've actually never seen, but I remember clearly watching the trailers and being so turned off about how creepy the characters looked in the trailers, how odd and and weird looking they looked because of the computer graphics that they're using. 
that's why I didn't go see the movie. It, it, I was like, this looks like a horror film. <laughs> uh, it, it really, really turned me off. And so I'm happy that he made the decision. I don't think Elf would be as endearing in this North Pole scene. It may not be a surprise to you. This is my favorite set piece in the movie. It is? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this hits all of the nostalgia feel for me. The the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer throwback, the stop-motion animation, ju- just the joyfulness of Bob Newhart and Ed Asner, the jokes about the like you said, the trolls and the gnome, everything here is working for me. I was had I had the biggest, goofiest smile on my face when I rented this movie. Ten minutes in, I was smiling like a doofus because I was so happy watching this again. What are some of the other locations that really popped? Well, I love Gimbal's North Pole as well. I mean, I actually this year wanted to kind of do a version of it on my front porch because I actually got an inflatable buddy, the elf, for my front porch. And I put a Santa next to him. So he's like, he's like doing the like Santa kind of move. Santa! Oh, my God. Santa here? I know him. I know him. Right behind him. And I had purchased all of these like snowflakes to put up above him because I wanted to create that whole scene. So for me, I think that that is so that is one of the happiest times that I I ever had. I feel like was being like a little kid. And when your parents take you to the mall and we would go in Massachusetts, there was like this big tree that talked and it was it looked like a gigantic Christmas tree. And you could go and tell it what you wanted and its mouth would move and stuff. But it was gigantic. Like it looked like a regular Christmas tree. I thought that was just amazing (laughs) so things like that that gets me every time the department stores that really put the effort into it it really is an art going to fao schwartz uh, during christmas time and being blown away about how magical it felt walking through the doors of that place watching what buddy does here in, in the gimbals makes me feel the exact same way like i'm transported to this magical land in this movie and i know i'm watching a movie and yet it still has the same effect on me so well done it is there is a german bar in new york city that i have been dying to go to for at least three years now they do these beautiful decorations for christmas time and they leave it up all the way to like may which is kind of funny that they bother to take it down in may but they do the low hanging decorations there's something about it that again just kind of makes you feel like you're just like in it it's like you're in the snow globe you're in the decorations itself I don't know. I find that just so, I don't just amazing. It really, it makes me feel the Christmas spirit. Like I'm in it. It's in my body. Yeah. It really permeates into like your soul in a really real way. And I, and I don't mean to sound cheesy about that, but that's why we're doing this podcast though, because that's the kind of joy that these things make me feel. That's why I hold on to it in a way that I don't hold on to like other genres and other holidays. Christmas is the only holiday that I really get excited for in the same way I did as a kid, as a 42-year-old. And it's because of how it makes me feel inside, Caroline. It, it really just fills me with so much kind of joy and happiness. Warm and gooey. Yeah, like like the kind of cookies that the elves make in the trees when they don't burn the thing down. It's yes. just soft and chewy inside. And like in that kind of when you like break it apart and you pull it and then and the chocolate like does like a string. That's how, you, that's how it'd be if you broke Caroline in half and pulled me apart. It would be like that chocolate stringiness. You've been to New York City a bunch of times. I don't know that you've ever, if you've ever been to Herald Square. Uh, anyone who's ever watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, though, should probably recognize the outside of Gimbal's because it looks like another store that 
that we all know and love. Uh, Gimbal's looks a lot like the Macy's in Herald Square. Yeah. Uh, the flagship Macy's. Which totally makes sense, though, because Gimbal's was like their top competitor in the day. Macy's didn't want to license their name. They didn't want their name to be used in the movie because of the fake Santa that gets revealed. That scene sank Macy's cooperation with using their name because they didn't want the they didn't want to be associated with ruining the illusion that there may be a fake Santa. I was really thinking about that scene and I was wondering about all those kids and stuff that are on set for that. Like I I, I really had a moment where I was like do you think their moms like bring them to the side and say like, so in every other department store, it's real, but we're just pretending this guy's fake, but, the, but Santa's aren't fake. <laughs> like I was trying to think of like, how would I explain it to my little guy if they were being an extra on the set? Not that a man child will rip the beard off of the Santa in the department store, but you never know when something is going to happen and the- So I was always prepared to say mall Santas or the department store Santas were lieutenants, like, like foot soldiers of Santa. Yeah. They, that they were there to collect information on behalf of Santa. Well, and for any little ear listeners that are listening to this, I mean, Santa is completely real. And that's the, that's the important part why I'm saying like, it would really upset people who were watching this and felt like, wait, what is happening? And I was really thinking about those little kids on set. Like, this is really saying Santa's fake is not cool. And so I was like, I don't know about all this. I don't know how I would play this out. Do you, th- do you think Santa at the North Pole watching this movie on premiere night was very pleased with how that all came out? I got to imagine no. I don't think he <laughs> likes anyone smelling like meat and cheese that he doesn't, you know? I imagine so. They actually built the set right around the corner from where the Macy's and Herald Square is located. So it's really cool because it all is really right by the Empire State Building, which was important because when Buddy gets thrown out from Walter's office and kind of stumbles across the street and he finds gimbals, that actually would happen location-wise with where they set it up. So I I think the movie just made really good use of like the setting of where the Empire State Building is in the city. And if, if anyone ever has a chance to go to Manhattan during Christmas time, you should absolutely take it. It is a truly magical place. There's some great trivia that comes out of this scene. What? What are? What, let's do fast, fast potpourri trivia for gimbal scene. I know that Wanda Sykes was supposed to play the manager there, and so the the gentleman that plays the manager instead has a Wanda name tag, which cracks me up. All right, he's <laughs> he's, uh, he's a guy named Wanda. I, I guess, always but thought of it a- as like holiday help. You know, like people are just hired on for short periods of time, and so it's just like you just wear whatever, you know, like yeah, whatever. Like you the have. leftover, like from the like yeah. disgruntled employee, like last yeah. season who quit. They were so convinced they had one sex that they actually went and made the name tag for her i wonder what happened to make her pull out that's the one part of the story that i never did get that i'm actually kind of curious well hit me with another fact fast fact the the chase through the store when he pulls off the mask and he accuses the fake santa of smelling like meat and cheese and it turns into like a brawl through and then wanda the the manager gets involved in that whole chase through they had to do in one take because it was impossible with the time that they had to rebuild the entire set so they had they captured that entire thing in one take yeah, it took two weeks and a crew of 12 people to actually create that look in Buddy's Santa land, including the Lego whole setup. So there was no way that they could try to rebuild that for another take. The kids that we see 
in that scene were filmed later. The chase was actually filmed in its one take in front of a green screen. The kids were then put were filmed later and put on the green screen to make it look like they were there watching. But it was deemed unsafe for the kids to be on set while that pandemonium was going on. And because they had to do it in one take, they couldn't take a chance that one of the kids got hurt. That makes me feel immensely better because then the kids didn't see him being accused of being a fake Santa. Oh, that makes me feel better. There you go. I didn't even put that together, but you're absolutely right. They probably were not there for they that. Wouldn't for have the unmasking. Been there. They wouldn't they have probably, been there. Oh, good job. Good job. They would, they would have been just told, all right, so look to your left and go, oh. oh. And look, now look to your right and go, ah. Oh. Exactly. 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 <laughs> okay, fast fact. I do not love Zoe Deschanel's hair as a blonde. I really don't like it. I like her with her dark hair and her dark eyebrows with her blue eyes. I think she looks so beautiful and she's such like an animated little face. Until she was cast as Jovi, there was actually very little music in the movie. It was only after Jon Favreau realized and learned that she was a singer and really had a beautiful kind of like soulful old school jazzy voice to her that they added music in, including the Baby It's Cold Outside duet scene which hasn't aged particularly well because the song hasn't aged particularly well but still works for me anyway from a nostalgia standpoint i think it's still an adorable scene where she's in a shower and he wanders in lured by her her song i've heard people say you know that it's a little uncool that he kind of says well i didn't know you were naked because they had shown him previously showering naked himself as an elf so he knows showers are taken naked so to say, I didn't know you were naked, mm, disingenuous, but, you know, I feel like when he first walked in and he heard her singing, you know, he just ignored the fact. I that think that's what it is. I think it's such a siren song for him. I think he really finds her voice so beautiful that he's not paying attention to the fact that she's in a shower. If you watch him sing the guy part, like he's just like in like, almost like a trance with it. I ought to say no, 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 Mind if I move in. At least I'm gonna say that I try. What's the sense of hurting my friend? I really can't stay. Baby, it's cold outside. Get out! Don't look at me! I agree. It's weird because he also then drops his pants in I Walter's know. kitchen. Like, come on. <laughs> it was like, so weird. The elves, I mean, what, what kind of weird lifestyle are the elves living <laughs> that he thinks that's fair? They go out of their way to tell us that the elves are making advanced computer chips. The bafflement that Buddy has with all technology, including stuffing 11 cookies in a VCR. You're, <laughs> you're making like the fastest possible processor computers at the North Pole, but you don't understand that. Well, Buddy doesn't, though. He doesn't get this stuff. This is why he's a bad elf. But he's still able to make 85 Etch-a-Sketches. So even if he doesn't make... Etch-a-Sketches are not microprocessor money. He's in the class, though, for the <laughs> computer chip class. Yeah. So he's there. I don't he know. doesn't I get it, though. He just doesn't I know guess. how. I he's guess it does little, baffle him. Well, ninny muggins. I wasn't saying the whole thing because I don't think he's that, but. A fun fact none of the VCRs work probably in the North Pole because they're all stuffed with cookies. <laughs> That's just a Mike fast fact. Think about this movie without any of the music. Think about it without the Baby It's Cold Outside scene. Think about it without the Central Park. Oh, gosh, it's a completely different movie if you take out the music. Because that's such a part of Buddy's little, like, singing his little songs. And they're so, like, random and impromptu. Like, I love it. Zoe Deschanel, not the person the studio wanted to play Jovi. No? Uh, no. They wanted Katie Holmes 
Okay. Uh, Dawson Creek's Katie Holmes three, though. I mean, that's probably the height of Katie Holmes's fame. So you can see why New Line wants her. She actually passed on the role. I love all of the city shots in this movie. It makes me feel like they must have filmed like for three months catching (laughs) all of the magic of New York City in this film. Mike, you're totally wrong, though. You might think that, but no, Mike, you're so wrong. It wasn't three months. It was only two weeks. Two weeks? That's it. 14 days, man. That's That's, it. That is a ton of hustle because they have them everywhere. They've got them in Central Park, in Rockefeller Center. They've got them in the Lincoln Tunnel, Caroline. Did you know that they had to film that Rockefeller Center scene between midnight and 4 a.m. and that was it? That was a one-shot deal? That's crazy. That's crazy. I know. Hit me with one. What you got? He actually walked through the Lincoln Tunnel dressed as Buddy the Elf. And they didn't close it off to the public. All of the New York City shots were done guerrilla style. And do you know that it actually caused car accidents because people were gawking at him? I mean, it takes a lot to make a New Yorker, like, stare at some weirdo on the street. But a guy wearing an elf costume crawling up against the side of the Lincoln (laughs) Tunnel, that's definitely something that's going to cause a pause. That was the very first thing that they shot when they got to New York. They put him out there with a cameraman, and what you saw is what you got. (laughs) Red suit guy was just a random passerby. He was not set up at all to be in that red jogging suit. And he just like ran up and was like, Santa, no. (laughs) It was John. It was Will Ferrell dressed as an elf. And it was a cameraman. And that was kind of how they did a lot of this stuff. The, The spinning of the door where he's in the revolving door. That was an actual, like, real revolving door. The people passing by, not actors. They were all extras uh, that were kind of caught on on camera when he, you know, he goes out and he vomits in the garbage can. <laughs> all just done right on the street. Just like, like, it must have looked like some kind of weird performance art. The gum on the subway railing, there was actually a piece of plastic that was down between the railing and the gum. And Will chewed the gum himself first. Then they put it on the plastic on the railing and then he did eat it up, including he did eat all the candy the entire time for the entire movie. Oh, good God. There were some nasty effects, Mike. Do you know about that? No, no. Tell me. (laughs) He vomited. He would have to redo things. He had bad headaches. It makes me really think about the fact that I suck on gobstoppers like most of the day. (laughs) Like maybe I should cease that. You know, you hear about people like Tom Hanks who like gain 100 pounds or lose 100 pounds for movies like Castaway. It's really Will Ferrell doing the Lord's work, eating all of the sugar during the shoot. Like M&M's with spaghetti and syrup and stuff. Syrup with spaghetti. I mean, in preparation for this filming i made myself some spaghetti with syrup and i couldn't do that for an entire film shoot i i, I would you eat a bite of it to, uh, well, eat a well, bite eat a bite <laughs> maybe we'll have a picture of me eating a, a little bit of this of the syrup spaghetti to go you did eat it didn't you you did take some bites i can tell well we'll say for movie magic purposes i did the last fast fact the nighttime central park scene it was their 13th and final night in new york city And that was when they captured Santa's magic in uh, Central Park. So 
Central Park is super magical. So I think at night with like twinkly lights and stuff, beautiful. There really are no such thing as Central Park Rangers. You know, in case your kids are watching that and they're like, I'm never going to Central Park for those men are scary on their horses. They're actually not a real thing. You know, they're supposed to look like the wraiths. And there's four of them because of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah, that's a bit much. (laughs) That's that's a lot. Well, I find them very intimidating. I find them very, very scary. They are for sure. Not as scary as the jack-in-the-box nightmare that Buddy has. (laughs) You know I was freaked out by that. For sure. Yeah, no, I find the Central Park Rangers, yeah, I I understand why Santa doesn't like them. I also understand why he put them on the naughty list. Yeah, I, I, you know, we've hit so many of our favorite parts of this movie. I think we're probably up to the part of the podcast where we can talk about, is this a great movie? Is this a great Christmas movie? Does it deserve to be a Christmas classic? Does this movie resonate with you as a great Christmas movie? Like being the the idea that it was really Buddy's journey to find his dad. It's great that it's winter time because it's like fun for like the snow and the twinkly lights and all the things that obviously Buddy loves. But I don't think it actually had to culminate at Christmas exactly. The lines that I love have nothing to do with Christmas. Like when he picks up the phone and he's like, what's your favorite color? Like all that stuff that cracks me up. I still do that to the kids all the time. All those one-liners just made me laugh so hard. So I say it's a great movie and I'm great with it being at Christmas, but it doesn't, it didn't necessarily, we've watched it many times during the year. It doesn't have to just be at Christmas. I I agree. I think this movie works at any time of the year. I think this is for sure a Christmas movie, not only because it's set at Christmas, but I mean, Christmas is heavily prevalent in this movie all of the decorations the entire ambiance of this movie is christmas inspired if this was set up with patriotic bunting for fourth of july i don't think this movie hits you the same way because there's a magic there's a there's a suspension of belief and a magic feeling in the air that only really exists at christmas time i think that's part of the joy of this movie is that suspension of your adult belief and really getting in touch with the child in you walter's journey is is to become a father and to become a better father to michael and and to buddy but it's also to kind of reawaken his inner child and find some joy in his life that it's not all about being a hard-nosed copy editor at greenway press that it's about getting in touch with your child side and i don't think this that hits you the same way if the movie's set any other time other than christmas so that's my defense of this being a real Christmas movie. The the joy and wonder that it invokes and that it's trying to get us all to be a little more in touch with. And I think that you're completely right about the portions about like the magic of Christmas and, you know, the extra generosity and all that kind of stuff. I, and I it what I'm trying to say is like it didn't if it ended a week before Christmas or something like that, that wouldn't have bothered me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like it doesn't have to culminate on Christmas Eve or, you know, I understand that it does, but it doesn't have to. I don't think Christmas movies have to take place on Christmas at all. That's not a requirement for me in any way, shape, or form. I think it has to take place around Christmas time. Agreed. But for me, Christmas time is any time from like the end of Thanksgiving through like New Year's. I think you're in the Christmas spirit, in the Christmas window. I think it has to evoke the feelings of Christmas, though. That's why this works for me. I agree. Can't get Santa's sled to fly until you have a belief in Christmas until until there's the Christmas spirit. And the Christmas spirit is about the joy in all of us, the joy and childlike wonder in all of us. It's interesting because, you know, how much the the boy, Michael, for me, there could have been such a heavy hand on the idea that he is losing his 
belief in magic, his belief in Santa and his belief in all of it. And there could have been such more of a focus on him. You know, that character doesn't really get fleshed out for me that much. And so I guess that's part of it again, like where I'm like, you're right. We have to go back and focus more on Walter and him finding his childlike wonder more than Michael retaining it. Buddy fills the role of the child in this movie. Michael is kind of redundant because Michael is a child, but Buddy is the more childlike of the two. And Michael is losing his Christmas spirit and has to relearn it. But Walter has lost his Christmas spirit and has to find it. So Michael is doing the work that Buddy and Walter are both doing entirely. So I think they're they're splitting the baby with Michael, which makes him a little unnecessary. And also Walter and Emily are a bit older. I think they could have not had kids other than Buddy walking into their life. And the story is exactly the same. I think Elf is exactly the same. I think it hits you the exact same way. I think it feels as good. I think it's as joyful and as childlike and as as wonderful and family friendly and all of the adjectives if Michael's not in this movie at all. Right. So it's so they do it very well with Buddy and the whole idea of his innocence. Like it is so well captured in him that it it seems like, yeah, no one can do it justice more than he can. Where's where's the character of Michael to go when you have Buddy being his most Buddy self? (laughs) Exactly. Honestly, I'll tell you, Michael is a little bit of a snot not to not to use the harsh language when when uh, the reporter, her last name is Denon, he reveals her christmas wish to get her boyfriend to commit to you know being with her he says it like a real sass that is kind of embarrassing to this reporter on television and unnecessary Mm. i I don't know that didn't really do me you know it didn't really make me feel great about michael that's not really the christmas spirit sir (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i mean i'm I'm glad that we are, are in agreement that this particular character i just think that there would have been other ways that buddy could have had little experiences here and there you know, a little co-worker at Gimbal's could have helped him through the date thing or, you know, little little things here and there to help him along and help him understand things. I don't know. It didn't have to be Michael. And for whatever reason, that they, a little sticks in my craw that I'm like, what are you doing here? What, what's your biz? I, not only that, but I think Emily would have had more to do if she had maybe picked up some of the slack that Michael does. I like that. You're right. If Buddy has to go to Emily with the I like this girl, like he takes her to Gimbal's. And they have time together because she has to play the role of, all right, Walter, you've now brought this man child into our life. I didn't know you had a kid. You didn't know you have a kid. And now we have to deal with this and handles it wonderfully. I mean, Emily and and Mary Steenberger like really nails the most wonderful wife you could imagine in the situation. I would have liked to have seen the couple things that Michael helps Buddy with move to Emily. And I think you have an even tighter story than you already had. I like that very much. Good rewrite. So, oh, yeah, I'm here to punch up the, the 17-year-old <laughs> this is movie. This what you do. <laughs> this is what I do. This is what I do. <laughs> I think this movie spends so much time trying to get us to be childlike again and and to have the Christmas spirit specifically, it really does work as a Christmas movie because there was a part of me, and I I told you this before we started recording, I don't know if this is actually a Christmas movie, but as I'm thinking about it, as I'm walking through the movie and we're talking out loud about it, this this movie is all about the Christmas joy and the Christmas wonder. And it's a very magical time that 
I don't think works at any other time of the year. If this was a Halloween theme or, a, like I said, a Fourth of July theme, I don't think all those Fourth of July movies. <laughs> It'd be like 1776 and then Elf. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, if Sam the Eagle came on the screen was and was like, you know, feel a love for America in your heart. Oh I don't God. think it feels it you. Know, feel you the same, no. Get that get that inner revolutionary wonder in your heart. It doesn't hit you the same. So it, it, this is a Christmas movie and I think it deserves it Christmas, a modern Christmas classic. Number one. Treat every day like Christmas. Fast fact. Gary Shandling was originally offered the role of Walter Hobbs oh, and passed. No. <laughs> you know what? James Caan and his hair and Farrell's hair shut up all day long. That's it. They're the match. <laughs> James Caan also just being such a stern, dramatic actor. I mean, we have Sonny Corleone of uh, of the Godfather movies playing the dad in this Christmas movie. Come on. What are you doing to me? But it works. It works so great. How about... We shouldn't be expecting an Elf 2 because Farrell has turned down $29 million for Elf 2. I'm kind of hoping that he revisits that. Although I've heard he said he's too old to get back in those tights. <laughs> I've heard I've heard the same thing. But as, uh, as, like, as of like two years ago, John Favreau was still talking about the possibility of a sequel, that uh, the idea of Buddy Saves Christmas kind of sequel. John's got an idea for it. We so. could use it. Don't you feel like we could use it in the world? Like Buddy needs to come back and be like, what has happened here? And like, try again. Buddy wearing a mask. I mean, Caroline, we're doing a podcast called The 52 Weeks of Christmas. I think you and I both very much agree we all need a little more Christmas spirit and joy in our lives. I do. And if Buddy would come and bring that, I would I would embrace him. I put him on my porch. What else you got for a fast fact? Number two. There's room for everyone on the nice list. Fast fact. Uh, it didn't spawn a sequel, but this it spawned a Broadway musical called Elf the Musical that ran for three months. Um, but actually did set a one-week record. It raised, it made $1.4 million in one of its early weeks, which was a record for the theater that it was in. A animated special called Elf, Buddy's Musical Christmas, an mm. hour-long stop-motion animated musical television special based on the film. It's a good one. Have you seen it? I haven't. I haven't. I know it's. My I know it has Jim Parsons. I love it. Right? It's got Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, I know. It does. It. My kids love it, love it. We watch it every year. Maybe when we launch our Patreon, we'll do like added, like a bonus add-on <laughs> Christmas content. Absolutely. So we could cover some of the It's a Wonderful Life uh, spinoff stuff that happened also. As well mm, as I like that very much. Hit me with a fast fact. Uh, how about speaking of Wonderful Life, did you know that Buddy's scene on the bridge was supposed to emulate George Bailey on the bridge? Oh, I see that. I see that. That's when he sees Santa crashing down in the Central Park. I love yeah. that. Something falls out of the sky and saves him, if you will. Yeah. Oh. oh. Santa, <laughs> also another supernatural creature. I wonder if he was an angel second class. I think he is an angel. Come on, Mike. Another homage, another movie homage is that uh, scene where... Michael and Buddy cut down the tree and drag it into the house and it doesn't quite fit. It's too big for the ceiling <laughs> is a National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation homage. I love that. How about that the Hobbs apartment building, 55 Central Park West, is actually the same as the Ghostbusters building? Oh, that's a good one. I like that fast fact. John Favreau heard from New Line Cinema they wanted to screen this movie because New Line was getting very nervous about the amount of money being used. The stop motion animation wasn't done 
done yet. So John Favreau calls up the company that they have, the Chiodo brothers, and says, if we don't get the stop animation sequences into this preview, New Line is going to cut it because New Line Cinema is looking to save money. And so it had to get in there. It wasn't done yet. So the animator, Teresa Drillings, she worked 27 consecutive hours and shot all of the stop motion animation in one 27 hour marathon to get it done and get it into the film in time. So it made it for the preview. And it did. That is incredibly impressive. Good on her. Yeah. A folklore says she may have drank up to 12 pots of coffee in order to get it done. <laughs> Which I think Buddy the Elf would appreciate. So. That's like on the on the wall at Dunkin' Donuts. There's like, did you know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'll give you one last fun fact. The scene where Buddy is going to put the star on the top of the tree and Will Ferrell actually backs out of the scene to take a running uh, start at it. He switches out with a stunt actor there and the stuntman actually does the running and jumping at the tree and they did it one long shot. That's pretty amazing. And there's a lot of furniture in that room. That is pretty <laughs> impressive. And again, fun with the practical effects. Like they could have just done, you know, a, a, a CGI. But no, let's get that stuntman in here and knock our tree over. <laughs> Number three. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Elf, unlike It's a Wonderful Life, big box office hit. $33 million budget. It ends up making worldwide $223 million, just about. It opens to $31 million. It makes over $31 million its first weekend. It did not come in first place in its opening weekend. It no. actually was beat by Matrix Revolutions in its first week. Really? It went on to take over the number one slot in the at the box office in its second week. Do you know how much I love Animaniacs, Mike? Uh, I love Pinky and the Brain so much. And did you know that the voice of Brain, Maurice LaMarche, is actually Buddy's burper and does that big, long burp? Really? <laughs> yes. That is fantastic. What a way to be known. I know, that right? Is a, He's that, like, is an, that is an impressive, <laughs> impressive, impressive uh, burp. He's took his residuals for that burp. That's amazing. Could you imagine? There are worse ways to make money in Hollywood, for sure. In the United Kingdom, Elf actually opened up second behind another Christmas movie, Love Actually. Oh, yeah. Hey, I think that's on our list, no? It may be. Oh, it may be if it list. is, I'm glad for that because I have not actually ever seen it. So I'm glad to be able to get a chance to see it. Mike, I think we should leave our listeners with the Santa's New York City rules. How do you feel about that? Very interested to see what Santa has for advice for all of us <laughs> for New York City. First, if you see gum, leave it. It's not free candy. Oh, useful. Useful tip. <laughs> Second, there's like 30 raised pizzas, but the real ones on 11th. I, you know, that is really useful information, and there are a ton of race pizzas. There's also a bunch of John's pizzas, and you have to be careful which one you go to, too, because they're not all the same. Third, peep shows. It's not for peeping at Christmas gifts. Don't you wonder what Santa <laughs> was doing that he knows that? No, because this is a G-rated show. <laughs> uh, uh, well, useful information. I think Leon, who uh, his name backwards, by the way, is Noel, which is a nice little fact. I think Leon gives us the best uh, tidbit when he reminds us all. Oh, by the way, don't eat the yellow snow. Good, good, good tip. All right, Caroline, we've come to the important part of the episode, or important to us anyway. Before we give out next week's uh, clue clip, let's talk about how many Jingle Bells we're giving this movie. So we're going to rate each week. We're going to rate the movie for 52 weeks. Uh, we're going to have a list. At the end of it, we're going to do our top 10 Christmas movies of all time, and it's going to be based on these jingle ratings, these jingle bell ratings. So uh, 
do you want to go first or do you want me to go first with your Jingle Bell rating for Elf? Okay, I guess I'm going to go first. I have a really hard time with this one because we've only done two movies so far and I can't help but compare it to the first movie. So given that it's just Wonderful Life and Elf, right now, I'm be honest, where I am in 2021, January, I am feeling a lot like I need to keep things lighter right now. I'm not ready to think about what the world's going to be like if I wasn't born. So for me, I'm going to give Elf a 9. It's a full Jingle Bell up from my Wonderful Life rating because if I had to make a choice right now if they're both on, I think I would leave Elf on because I need the laughter, I need the lightheartedness, I need the antics of Will Ferrell. How about you, Mike? Okay, so I went with an eight and a half. I was a half step above you last week on It's a Wonderful Life, and I'm going to go a half step above that, and I'm also going to give it nine jingle bells. I'm giving Elf nine jingle bells, because is this a perfect movie? No. Is it as close to a perfect Christmas movie as I can imagine? I think it is. It is silly. It is joyful. It it always leaves me in a much, much better mood than it than I was in before I watched it. And I don't know how much more you can ask from a movie than that. But, you know, we, we have 50 more weeks of movies and specials and stuff coming down the pipe. And I don't want to... I don't want to go all the way to 10. And again, <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's a You're not ready to commit to marriage quite yet. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll buy the this this movie The World's Greatest Cup of Coffee, but I don't know that I want to move to the North Pole with it. Can I tell you how much I want to go into a store or a restaurant now that has like world's best and be like, congratulations, you did you it. did it. I, listen, will you bet me so that you can have to pay me something? <laughs> I will pay for that world's greatest cup of coffee if you do oh, that. Oh, you will? If I can okay. get that on film. It has to be. Oh, no. It, uh, it has to be on film? It has to be. Yeah, it has to be okay. recorded or it has to be, uh, you know, uh, somehow memorialized for the trick of it will be to find the signage that says world's best something other right now and then I'll find it and then um I'm gonna, I don't have any problem walking I, I I'm actually this is exciting I want to do this now I'm jazzed for this I want to congratulate someone for the world's best whatever it's pretty fantastic and you know what you're gonna make them feel pretty good about themselves and they're gonna laugh and that's gonna that makes me the most happy you know what and I make it that a lot of places during the Christmas season the places that have those signs during the holiday season probably actually get that because people are watching (gasps) elf it's probably in their brain but you're I'm thinking you do this in like a March or April no one's (laughs) gonna have any idea what you're talking about or what you're doing (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to it. You did it! Congratulations! World's best cup of coffee. Great job, everybody. It's great to meet you. Hi. Mike, do you have a clip for me for next week? I do. Here is your clue for next week's movie. So what, her parents are believing that their straight daughter brought home her lesbian friend for Christmas? No. No. They also think that I'm... That I'm straight. Have they ever met a lesbian? Huh. I do not know this movie, Mike. No, no, neither do I. I've never seen it. <laughs> I've never seen it. I, I may have pulled a bad clip that has nothing to do with the movie. It's just <laughs> what I pulled. Next week, 2020 holiday movie, Happiest Season. Do you know why I'm excited to cover Happiest Season, Caroline? Ooh, I, it might, I could be wrong, so I, I might embarrass myself here. But is it by any chance that Dan Levy's in it? It is! Dan Levy, <laughs> our good 
buddy from Schitt's Creek. Yay. Not that we know him personally, but we do cover the Schitt's Creek podcast. He's our good buddy because, you know, he got us through some tough times. I am so excited for this and looking forward to our third week from our 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could leave us a five-star review, it would be most appreciated. Don't make us call you a cotton-headed ninny muggins. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.